Thank you, Steve. Um, <clears throat> well, thank you for coming here. Um, I was feeling pretty good about this until Steve then mentioned that I'm going to read a paper. Um, this is more a collection of thoughts that have come out of the work that I do around business and its relationship to climate change and other basic challenges uh, of the 21st century. And for anybody that has taken an interest in climate change, sustainability, resource-constrained economies and all these things, it will be quite apparent that there is a strong ethical dimension to this. Or at least the issues are often portrayed in an ethical way. Um, the title, the intriguing title. One of the strange things about business, I think, is this love-hate relationship that we have developed with it. On the one hand, obviously we look to business to provide goods and services. Sometimes we get very worked up about the idea that the private sector is going to provide public goods. And the current debate around the reform of the National Health Service or the current debate around the big society is an example of this. Why are these things being privatised? Do they need to be privatised? What does the private sector offer? And always think, you know, I'm currently preparing my banner for the march on March the 26th. Um, and it does occur to me that the, uh, we were not to blame, it was the public sector that was to blame, and yet, sorry, it was the private sector that was to blame, um, and yet we are being asked to embrace more and more the private sector. So we have this kind of thing of, we do love business. We love the things that it brings, we love the shops, we love the fact that electricity arrives on time, we love the fact that um, uh, that we can move around transport-wise, we love the fact that we can communicate with each other very freely, we like the innovations that the private sector brings, and so on and so forth. We even, indeed, um, despite certain things going wrong with the financial sector, certain fundamental things going wrong with the financial sector, we do actually like the fact that the banking system doesn't lose our money um, uh, incredibly often, certainly not as often as it historically did. Um, so we have this very ambivalent relationship. Now, there's two things behind Mr. Burns here that you could portray. One is the idea that this, this gentleman, this squillionaire, it's so rich, how on earth could he possibly be a moral person? What it actually represents is how much money I would have if I had a dollar for every time I have said, I work in business ethics, and people say, isn't that a tautology? Um, I would be a very rich person indeed. But... There is a field, there is a, a long-established field of business ethics. And I'm just going to, in order to understand what the challenges are of the 21st century, I want to give a bit of a backdrop to 
how business ethics itself has been interpreted and how it has evolved. So one meaning that we, when we talk about business ethics is that there are objective ethical perspectives on business itself. They can be pro-business. I love capitalism. Just look at what growth brings to our society. Or it can be very anti-business. With the protests, protests against capitalism. Many times, many of you will remember the riots in Seattle uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, this whole movement against the World Trade Organization. And the whole idea that the one functioning governance body that we have for a globalized era is the World Trade Organization, uh, which seems to be putting a... a putting a flag in the sand that says what we value above all is, uh, is business. And business pretty much is used interchangeably with capitalism. I mean, business itself actually is very resilient to different political economic systems. So uh, you do have business pre-capitalism, obviously you've had business working quite successfully under national socialism, and so on and so forth. But by and large, when I'm talking here, I'm talking about business within the capitalist system. The second meaning is the idea that business is made up of individuals, and individuals are moral beings, they bring in particular values, they often feel very uncomfortable. When I'm teaching um, business ethics to business school students, one of the things that comes across is they are very uncomfortable about, as they put it, parking their values in, uh, outside the building whenever they go into work. Um, and so as individuals with an ethical perspective, taking those ethical perspectives into the business environment, not surprising, they would draw on established ethical theories, whether that be Aristotle, John Stuart Mill, John Rawls, or any other of the systems that they are part of. And this, we see this in practice, we see this panning out in a number of different circumstances. We see Bernie Madoff, uh, the, the American um, uh, guy behind the biggest Ponzi scam ever. Here he is being arrested as an individual acting unethically and that not just the law, but society as a whole, condemns that kind of practice, even at the same time as it praises uh, and encourages the kind of entrepreneurship, the kind of rush for wealth that Madoff symbolises. This is the gentleman behind Polly Peck in a similar situation. And it's not just about people being caught out, it's also people taking a moral stand. So this lady here was the woman who blew the whistle on Enron. Uh, this is the lady who blew the, the whistle on Worldcom. People taking an ethical stand that goes against the interests of these businesses. Moving on from that within ethical theory, we find that we move from the ethics of individuals to then say, well, we can aggregate 
ethical individuals, and that becomes the ethics of the business itself. So rather than think of, here I am as a whistleblower, that somehow all the ethical values that we bring into the workplace here, and that silhouette is meant to be a factory, each of us brings in our ethics, and so the, the workplace becomes um, a forum, a context within ethical, within which ethical issues are played out. Um, and out of that we have an ethic emerging that is not simply the ethic of an individual, but it's something that is the result of the uh, aggregate of individual ethics. So we have, coming from that, we have organisations making statements about their ethical stances. We treat others as we would like to be treated ourselves. We do not tolerate abusive and disrespectful treatment, ruthlessness, callousness and arrogance don't belong here. kind of thing that um, clearly makes a very strong stand about the, uh, the values of business. Any idea what com company that is? It was Enron. That was their, their statement in the year that they won the Corporate Responsibility Award which um, was the most corporately responsible company in the world, and that was the year before they became the biggest bankruptcy in history. So, don't believe what you read, necessarily. But companies do have these strong statements. And what this symbolises, I mean, clearly this is a lot of BS, but what it does symbolise is the feeling within companies that we do have to make... Uh, to, st to stake out an ethical space. And that leads us into the fact that business becomes a forum, a field where power, responsibility and duty, relationship between means and ends, and business pur business's purpose, uh, purpose, all of these things play out. That it's not simply I go into business or indeed I go into a university and I have my values, but that the ethical space, the ethical context, the subset of society of business is a, is a moral arena. Which, as with any societal moral, moral arena, does not mean uh, that it is always 100% ethical. What I mean here is a moral arena is a space where these things are played out. Coming from that, we have the fourth meaning. That business itself wants to be recognised as a moral and ethical entity. This is a very strong argument, particularly in the US. It's become a strong argument in the US partly because, um, because of this gentleman, um, partly because Amendment 14 to the American Constitution, which was about guaranteeing the rights of slaves, that property could not be seized, 
has been taken by business itself to say we have rights, we should be treated as an ethical being. We can dispose of, of what we own. Prior to that, in the States, also in Europe, um, the idea was that a business was often chartered. East India Company would be an example of that. It was chartered to do certain things, it had certain functions, and at the end of its charter, that organisation, that company, ceased to exist. So you didn't have a company like Unilever, or a company like uh, Cadbury, that went on in perpetuity. You had companies that were limited by charter to perform certain functions for a limited amount of time. So a classic example of that was the right to operate turnpikes on roads. And you had that permission for a certain amount of time, you owned the turnpike on the road, you could collect the revenue for that, but that was all that you could do. With the Dred Scott case, and this is, this is the man that was at the point of this, was with the Dred Scott case, what it said was, um, when, it was, when it was repealed, what it said was the people had the right to dispose of their um, dispose of their goods. Um, and so for companies, suddenly they picked up on this and they said, well, you know what, we're going um, we're gonna, to we're gonna, we're gonna follow this through. We are going to we are going to have to be treated as individuals. And the fear, of, the difference between that is that whereas I as a person, I have the right to own things, I have the right to free speech, I have the right to vote in elections and so on and so forth, these are all rights and responsibilities that companies themselves do not have. In the States, but you see it filtering through in Europe and elsewhere, but it's very noticeable in the States, you have this uh, idea that's been going on really since the, um, the mid-1800s of fighting for uh, the rights for companies to be recognised as ethical entities in their own right. And the fear there is out of this you get some kind of Frankenstein monster. But the consequences of this today are that company like BP, regardless of the individuals, a company like BP becomes liable for its actions as a corporate entity. This, by the way, was a genuine BP advertising slogan. Um, um, Google in China, Google has said, uh, has got into... Um, well, made an announcement that it would withdraw from China because the government was insisting that it hand over confidential information and the not confidential information to Google, but confidential information about Google's users. And Google made the stance that this was immoral. Google took that stance as an as an ethical entity. Google famously has the slogan "Do no evil." 
Nike is a very interesting one. This is Nike swoosh. Um, because Nike actually ended up in the Supreme Court on an issue about whether a corporation is an ethical entity or not. The way it did this was a case called Kasky versus Nike. This was in um, uh, the mid-2000s. It began in the California Supreme Court before that. What it was, was that Nike... Um, Nike was produced... Nike was involved... So let me take a step back. Anybody that knows about the history of Nike will know that Nike was under uh, great pressure because the production of its sports shoes from... Uh, the early 1990s onwards, there was allegations about child labour and particularly about very low-wage labour in countries like Indonesia. Nike at first denied this was happening, but over a period of time, uh, Nike began to try and take these things seriously. And in its corporate responsibility report, which came out alongside its corporate report, so it's got, it was intended for the shareholders, it said... We are combating and, um, uh, abusive labour practices in the factories that produce for us, and we have succeeded in raising workers' wages and uh, bringing out child labour, uh, forcing out child labour. Mark Kasky said, "No, you didn't. Here is the proof. There is still child labour in these factories. Uh, there is still workers working for less than the minimum wage." And he could prove it. So he said this was false advertising. Nike responded and said it wasn't advertising, it was free speech. And with free speech you can say whatever you want, it doesn't matter whether it's true or not. Up till that point, corporations had not asked to be considered ethical entities with the right to free speech. This was the first time. The case eventually, it went up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court sent it back to the California Court and Nike settled out of court. So the whole thing was not resolved. I think to the chagrin of a lot of people in corporations who actually wanted a solid ruling. But the point here is that it's part of this trend for companies to be seen not as the aggregation of the ethics of individuals, but to be ethical entities in their own right. And that goes back to the Dred Scott case. From that we see people like R.G. Carroll coming up with, okay, how do we define business as an ethical, uh, as an ethical entity? What are the different parts of that ethic? And so R.G. Carroll came up with uh, the pyramid of corporate responsibility. And it's got these four components. You've got economic responsibilities, the responsibilities to produce goods and services that society wants um, at a profit for investors. That's one dimension to that ethic. You've got legal compliance. You've got to obey the law. You've got the ethical responsibility, which goes beyond the legal, it goes beyond the economic, and it says... You've got certain obligations as a corporation to be a good citizen. And then you've got discretionary ones which boil down to philanthropy, um, 
and how much money you're going to give Oxford University for that chair in business ethics. Um, there's anybody in the audience that knows anyone that would like to endow a chair in business ethics? I'm available. Um, and so out of this, we come back to, with business emerging as an ethical entity in itself over the last hundred years or more, what form of ethics, what moral system are we actually talking about? And there's a lot of books you can go and find. Um, you can go and find the Aristotelian perspective on business ethics. You can go and find uh, Descartes on business ethics. You're not Descartes writing himself about. Sorry, Kant uh, not writing himself about business ethics, but the Kantian perspective on business ethics. Uh, and so on and so forth. But really, the one that stands up, if you think of business as an ethical entity, really the only one that stands up is utilitarianism. And out because you see that there are these moral values that are inherent in business, in business in a modern capitalist society. Some of these are reflected in law. Some of them are reflected in company law. Some of them are norms. Some of them are about to do with businesses' license to operate. But put them all together and they become the system. The duty to generate jobs, wealth and products. It's a very, very much about an end result. It's not about everybody... Uh, it's not a, it, you haven't got the um, you have you couldn't really introduce a Rawlsian perspective into that even even if you were talking about Maxim Maximin um, the duty to obey the law the right to extract a profit the right to own and dispose of assets the right to commoditize goods products and labour I mean this is this is a particularly important one not often a very stated one. I mean, business ethicists love to talk about um, behaviours. They're almost fearful of talking about things like this, whether this is actually um, an acceptable right. So when it comes to the head, it comes to the head as a um, more as a business versus society type of thing. Um, so you have... Well, if I've got the, I've got, I have this right as a business to, to uh, commoditize products, uh, and to, well, to, let me take the example of commoditizing labour. So, I pay you your wages. Once I've paid you your wages, you're not beholden to me. I'm not beholden to you. I can sack you. I've got no longer-term responsibility, at least under the law, than that. Or there might be certain things about. Um, Layoff periods, and uh, but essentially, I can treat you as labour as a commodity. It's a very Marxian type idea um, of what uh, commoditization is. Um, we don't question that. You will hear on the news almost every day that whether we're talking about BA or the Royal Mail, the Royal Mail is in conflict with its workers. 
what do we mean by the Royal Mail? What we mean, of course, is what the newspaper are really saying is Royal Mail management is in conflict with its workforce. It's never presented like that. It's presented as Royal Mail being the company is in conflict with its workers, which de facto in that statement and in the common way that we look at things, the workers are not part of that company. They are a commodity that can be disposed of. You can lay them off, you can move the, the factory overseas, and so on and so forth. And in fact, you may be punished by your shareholders if you do not do that. Now from this, what we are seeing with this is very much the ethics of neoliberal capitalism. Whether we're talking about Nozick, whether we're talking about Ayn Rand, uh, and it's summed up by Milton Friedman. The only social responsibility of a law-abiding uh, business is to maximise shareholder profits. In fact, I was listening to the radio yesterday, um, and there was somebody on the radio, uh, from the interviewer perspective on the radio, who presented this to somebody they were interviewing uh, as a statement of fact, that this was the only possible thing that you could ever think about. I mean, the fact is, in business schools and in senior management in business itself, there's a lot of questioning about whether this is accurate anymore. But in terms of common thinking about business, this is still a very common way of thinking. These, these ideas, one, two, three, have become the norm of the way that we think about business, particularly... Um, in most of the OECD countries. So there, is, there are differences in continental Europe. Um, I am talking quite a lot about uh, the, the Anglo-Saxon model here. Um, and what that leads us to is this kind of, the, the fifth meaning, that capitalism itself is a moral construct. If we go back to meaning one, business is seen as something that uh, is, is morally judged by society. It's either very good or it's very bad or it's something in the middle. But actually capitalism itself is a moral construct under meaning five. And business within that is, as um, Druckner called it, the representative institution. And the conditions of that neoliberal capitalism under that is that growth is essential, competition is essential, free flow of capital, trade and labour is essential, and the rule of law is essential. Those are the things that you've got to have in order to deliver that, um, that idea of capitalism. These are the absolute must-haves. So that brings us nicely, if you like, to the end of... Uh, the 20th century. That was pretty much, if you looked at any books on business ethics up until 2000, that's pretty much the perspectives that you get. You would have one of those five different meanings, interpretations of what business ethics was. So now let's look from the C-suite, where, where all the executives hang out. Let's have a look at what they're looking at today. We have seen in recent times a lot of discussion about water. And this is just a quick diagram of the changing water availability. And 
The red bits mean extreme stress, the yellow bits high stress. You can see if you go from 1960s, 2020s, predictions for the 2050s, more and more water stress. You were sitting in business, you were not really worried about the idea of a finite planet. This is one of the examples where a finite planet is affecting everyone, and it is affecting business. It is affecting business because, just look at what's happening with the floods. We, you know, we, we, we talk about the floods. Um, uh, now, Australia and so on recently... But this, this is not one-off. It's not a kind of thing you can instantly attach to uh, very recent climate change. It's, some, it's a trend that has been going on since 1950s. Always upwards, always upwards. More and more and more flood events. And that's something, that for business, that is uh, very dependent on st stable supply chains, very dependent on um, the growth of urban areas. This is something that is going to matter to you as an executive. It is said that Lee Scott, the CEO of, um, of Walmart, the thing that got him thinking about sustainability was Katrina and the, and the floods that happened there. And that's one of a number of changes in our ecosystem that you are observing from the C-suite. You're also looking at the demographic change, the fact that we've gone from two and a bit billion people in 1950 through to, uh, where are we now, 6.1 billion today, and the projected 9 billion and so, 9 billion and change by 2050. You're thinking about that. What does it mean for me as a business? Great opportunity. Lots more people are going to go out and um, uh, go, and go out and buy my widgets. Is that good news? Well, now, hang on, where are those people going to be? Are they going to want the same widgets? Um, am I going to get enough raw materials for my widgets? Because my widgets grow in... Um, the, the raw materials come from farmland, and people are starting to move into the farmland, and so on and so forth. And this is one of the big changes, is that my markets are going to shift into much more into developing countries. The population growth is here in the developing world. It's not here in the markets that I understand. These are now saturated markets. And they're not going to get any bigger. Here is where my growth is going to be. But a lot of those people there are going to be relatively poor. A lot of them are going to be on less than $2 a day. 3 billion people on less than $2 a day. A lot of them may not want to go out and buy my widgets. And so on and so forth. It's a change. I won't go into the details of what that change means, but it's a change. Here, from my perspective, but I don't think I'm completely off the wall in this, my perspective, this is the biggest change. Here we are today, greenhouse gas pollution, tons of CO2 or equivalent emissions per year, and the, you know, the famous things, Australia, United States, Canada, uh, all off the charts with only the slim hope that, hey, we're not doing quite as badly as United Arab Emirates. Um, so you've got this about 25 tonnes of emissions a year. And then you've got places like India, India, China, 
saying, hey, we want to emit more. We want to be up here as well. Either these guys are going to come down or we're going to go up. We want to, you know, we want to emit more. And yet all these scientists are saying emissions are a bad thing. Well, the fact is, if we were to allocate a budget for carbon emissions, it would have, in order to avoid catastrophic climate change, it would have to be about five gigatons uh, per annum across the board, spread across. Everybody in this room would get their five gigatons. So for the states, you're going to go from 25 down to five. Between now and... Some people still say between now and 2050, realistically, we're probably now talking about 2040. Uh, you've got to do that. But also, China, all its aspirations, India, all its aspirations, can only go up that much. They've got about one gigaton to play with. So here you are, you've got your markets growing here, this is where you're going to be, but they can't emit more. And to put that in another way, if all the world, this is with Walter Illumin Luminosity in 1996, and you can see lots of lights on in the States, lots of lights on in Britain. You can see there we are in Oxford. We've all got our lights on there. Um, we haven't got too many lights on in Indonesia over here. Quite a lot on in Japan. Well, if all the world was to be as luminous as America, this is what it would look like. How the heck do you get the energy to do that? Put that another way. This is our carbon intensity. The um, so uh, the emissions that we have uh, for GDP for dollar of GDP, and this is what it was in 2007. Carbon intensity uh, goes carbon emissions by per dollar, and here we are. The world average is 768 grams. UK. We're on 347. Japan, doing a little bit better, 244. If all the world just carried on with its trend income growth, so no closing of income gaps, just carrying on with trend income growth, we would have to get that carbon intensity down to 36 grams per person. If everybody in the world, those 9 billion people by 2050, were going to be have the same incomes, the same standard of living as we do in the EU, we've got to get that down to six grand. Get confused in the numbers. Get confused about whether climate change is real. Get confused about anything. But if you are in business, if you are in the C-suite, this is something you have never had to face before. That you are going to grow as a company because you, all you can do is grow. That's all you know how to do. You're going to grow and you're at the same time you're going to have to get your consumers reducing their carbon intensity by astronomical amounts by 2050. So if you're in the C-suite in 2010, you've got the old values of corporate growth, shareholder value, obey the law, meet customer needs. This is where it gets interesting because now you are doing that you're looking for prosperity in a resource-constrained economy. You're looking at success in emerging and poor markets where you may not have had to really focus before. You're looking what to do to establish a license to operate where the legal infra infrastructure is weak. One of the things that Milton Friedman says 
is companies should go out and make profits within the, the boundaries of the law. In a global society, the differences in uh, the strength of sovereign law are going to be very great indeed. And so you are going to, you're often going to be, have to maintain standards even though the law itself is weak. Because if you don't, then activists, other governments, you'll be, you might do bad things in Ecuador, you get away with it because the law says this, but some smart American lawyer is going to have you in court in New York. And you've also got the public desire for more and better goods and services. Now, historically, this is where we were. This was our conventional... This is the external environment we, the businesses used to operate in. Growth goes up, carbon grows up. Growth goes up, carbon grows up. Where we are now is the hope that growth will keep going up, carbon comes down. The problem becomes that as carbon comes down, what on earth happens to growth? So what we're betting on at the moment is this, that we can decouple economic growth from carbon growth. But this may be the other option. <coughs> this one doesn't exist anymore. You've written that off as a business. Yet this is the one that you were most used to. You, when you went to management school, as a... As a, as a um, as a budding executive, you went, when you went, um, became part of the private sector, you had a political, legal, technological, social, economic system that all supported a strategy of growth. And everybody bounced along. Government said you were doing the right thing. The public said you were doing the right thing. A few people bitched and moaned about it. But generally, everything was bubbling along because... What was happening internally was congruent with the external environment. How do you stop this thing bouncing? Um, this would also remain true if we managed to do this. Growth goes up, this comes down. Essentially, that is, that is the, uh, the big bet that is being made on geoengineering. That we can carry on the way that we're living because we will come up with something really, really smart technologically that means that we can keep on spending carbon like it's going out of fashion. Then we can carry on. The external environment doesn't really shift. There are certain things that shift, but it's not a major shift. Everything remains congruent. But the real question is, what happens when our external environment moves? Because of resource constraint, because we don't find that geoengineering solution, because of demographic shift, because of ecosystem shift with the growth in floods, uh, the shortages of food, the food crisis, the food prices, and so on and so forth. That this has moved over here, and yet we have a political, legal, technological, social, economic system that really still is focused on this. So it's, this has not followed the changing external environment. In which case, that strategy of growth then just starts to spiral out of control. Um, so what does business do in that kind of situation? Well, it could look to government to provide leadership. So we've got two very green-oriented leaders here. Any idea who the top one or the bottom one is? I'm not sure Which one? 
This was what they said afterwards. The forensic, <laughs> relentless focus on growth is what you will get from this government. I always want to see cranes everywhere. Seventy percent, twenty-five percent. Which is the seventy-five percent? That one or that one? This is last year. Well, from the mood of your talk, I take that... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much, huh? You get the picture. Planning applications for wind farms. The thing that we're all talking about, this is the thing that's going to save us. Uh, 25% of those applications were approved. There's a great one. Anybody that wants to go on this trip this Sunday, go out to Horsepath. The road between Wheatley and Horsepath. And it is brilliant. As you come down this hill, and... There's all these signs that say, please no windmills in horsepower. These little signs by the road, I don't know if anybody has seen this. And it is great because you come down the hill. The backdrop for this is pylons. Pylons as far as the eyes can see. The people for horsepower are defending the right to have pylons. Because pylons are aesthetically more pleasing than wind farms. Um, sorry, that was a complete diversion. <laughs> just, you wonder sometimes. But we are happy to have applications for road supermarkets and other major infrastructure, which has no green component at all. What was this? Any idea? This was a... Sorry, I'll give you... I should give you a bit of background on that. This is a conference. What was the theme of the conference? Big Society? Could be the Big Society. You're on the right path of who does it. It was the Conservative Party Conference Green Growth Day. Please find anything there that is about green. I challenge you. Uh, child benefit, government cuts, benefits, Osborne. The, there was no mention. In fact, there is a great sign um, tucked away on, on Google somewhere where this, it's actually a little film clip where this journalist goes and looks for uh, the green growth part and comes to a little room at the back of the Conservative Party conference and it says cancel. Green growth, cancel. So we've got this situation here where we've got to get from somewhere like this down to somewhere like this, not that actually, down to that if we're going to have an equal kind of distribution. And that's the situation we're in. Are we going to do that? Are we going to get to decarbonisation? 2000, the goal was to decarbonise at 2% per annum. We achieved 0.8% per annum from 2000 until about 2007. So we missed it by 1.2. Not too bad. It's the equivalent of 13.4 gigatons. So basically, if you've got China and the USA to turn off all their lights for a year, we could play catch-up. That's all it would take. Get them to turn the lights off. That meant that when we came into 2008, we had a goal of 3.4%. We didn't achieve it despite the recession. The target now, the latest of figures, and these are figures from PricewaterhouseCoopers, the latest figures are that we would need to decarbonise at 3.8% to avoid exceeding 450 parts per million of emissions 
450 parts per million is the cutoff point for most people between manageable carbon change, climate change, and catastrophic climate change. We have wasted 10 years. Again, coming back to so the, so maybe if government isn't going to sort this out, maybe technology, maybe people will invest in this. Pirates of Caribbean. You know when numbers get really, really, really big and they talk in billions and you just lose all sense? This is my new denomination of currency. This is the Pirates of Caribbean 3. Pirates of Caribbean 3 has a budget of $300 million. That is exactly the same as the amount of money that Britain is going to invest in new forms of alternative energy. Our commitment as a country is the same as the budget for the Pirates of Caribbean 3. Kind of weak, isn't it? So, the, so there is, I think, a good argument to say we're in this bit. We don't know what's going to happen with that growth. We are in a situation where we are incongruent with our external environment. Because we're asking business to carry on doing all this stuff, to maintain its old values, and yet we're not providing any solution about how it can grow, what the impact of free flow of capital, trade, and labor is going to be, and we're not providing any solution about how to create a rule of law. It kind of leaves business on its own in wrestling these big, big challenges for the 21st century. And that brings us to meaning six, which is really to be determined. Are we going to have a future for business of prosperity without growth? And if you read the books of Tim Jackson, for instance, you will see Bill McKibben, they talk about that. Well, we have wise growth, where growth is invested in things that help society rather than it's simply about consumption no matter what. Are we going to redefine the corporate purpose in the way that, say, fair trade or social enterprise wants to be, where the emphasis is not on profits? It's about using the management practice and the thinking of business, but for social environmental purposes. Or are we going to get into something like engineered spending, the anathema to the neoliberals that you will find ways of controlling or engineering the consumer spend? It's not about reining it back. It's saying spend on some things and not on others. Um, and so somebody like Frank in Luxury Fever talks about consumption tax. There's a lot of talk about consumption tax, both from the right wing and the left wing. A lot of economists on both sides actually like consumption tax, but politicians hate it. If we come back to our C-suite, it means each of these are possible horizons for business. None of them are very comfortable. The business is seen as inherently unethical moving forwards because it defends this old paradigm that is not congruent with the external environment. That business becomes some kind of ethical leader in taking on these challenges. It comes at the forefront of the new paradigm. Business becomes a follower of a new emerging form of ethics, whatever that may be. 
in which case followership. All business is a representative institution of the new paradigm, that business plays a central role because governments and our other institutions are not up to the challenge. It is likely to be one of these, or a mix of these, but they are all there to play because we, there is no clear... Uh, we're really at a stage of, of uncertainty and very great deal of confusion about how to move forward. One thing is for sure is that what we are trying to do at the moment is the equivalent of rolling dice in an attempt to win a cricket match. We are simply playing the wrong set of games in order to try and win the game that we think we're playing. It's never going to happen. 